If you turn in your Bible to uh, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at uh, the idea of fruitful labor and considering Paul's thoughts on the matter and then speaking uh, about about where it is that we find ourselves today in in 2017. Philippians chapter 1, starting in in verse 15, we're going to read to verse... 26. Paul says this, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. We pray that your word would do its amazing work. The word both cuts and wounds. It brings conviction and pain and it shows us the standard that we do not live up to. And and that is one function of the word. And we pray, Lord, that, that the impact of the word in this way would be true and not tainted with the lie of Satan, who wants us to believe that we are either fine without you or that with you we are ineffective and pathetic. And so we pray that as the word cuts to bring correction, that it would also bring healing and show us grace and power. Because the Bible teaches us that we have been introduced into a grace in which we stand. That that we have received favor and that there is none to accuse. That there is no condemnation. That there is no lack of righteousness. And so we pray, Father, that as we hear the word, that we would hear it in truth. And that we would understand that you called us for a purpose and that we would embrace it, Lord, by your grace, for your glory 
and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as, I, as I think about uh, the, the place and purpose of the individual in the world, I, uh, I struggle to come up with a, a good rival story. Uh, that's probably uh, just the fact that I, I did not uh, really dig into this. You know, I, I maybe I've gotten a little bit lazy in terms of typing things like rival stories into Google and, and finding things that are, are just not compelling or interesting. But when I thought about rivals, I moved through, through some of the more contemporary stories, but I came back to an old biblical rivalry. There were two preachers, and one of them had enormous crowds coming, and the other was unknown. And in his ministry, he preached and he taught, and people came from miles around to hear him. And then one day, a new and upcoming preacher came to the first one and said, bless me, in quotes. That's what people heard. I want to be part of what you're doing. And the young, uh, the, the, the first preacher baptized the second one. And then the voice of God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The other preacher went away and began his preaching ministry, and the disciples of the first preacher, John the Baptist, said, everyone's leaving us. We were there. We had tremendous success. We were, we were the thing. Our church was packed. When you preached, people came from miles around but now that guy's followers are doing what we did. We started the baptism thing, and now they're all going after him and listening to him and following him, and it's all Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the time. And I am sure... That in some place, John's ambition, John's sense of self was at issue. That, that he thought, I began a ministry, I had a place, I had a role, and now it is vanishing. Because this is a human. And so I think this must have occurred to him. But what he said how he followed through on his ambition and his sense of self is that he spoke to the crowd, he spoke to his disciples, and he said, this is the purpose of my ministry. The purpose of my ministry was to point to him. He must increase and I must decrease. And, and seeing his role changing, John continued to minister to the best of his ability and to the heights of his talent. He was jailed and imprisoned and eventually put to death. When I look at ambition out in the world today and, and think about the, the purpose of life, I think that, that ambition falls into two categories. One way of looking at ambition is to try to be the best, to be the best, to be the best at whatever it is that you do. That's what ambition looks like. It is a climbing 
thing. It is an aspiring thing. I will have no lack of financial security. I'll have no lack of people praising me. I'll have no lack of, of fans or ability or influence. I will be the best. And I think we can all smell people like that at one level or another, right? You know, when you know that somebody's all about themselves, it just kind of radiates off of them. And, 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 and we find that unattractive. The person who says, I am going to be the best is going to bring their own light. They're going to bring their own influence, their own power. The problem here is that we all fade, right? There's always someone bigger. There's always someone better. The guy who ran the fastest mile 20 years ago has found that today, if he ran that same race against today's athletes, he wouldn't even come close to winning. Everyone, even the guy who finishes last, is faster than he is. Because there's always someone faster, better, or bigger. The other way to look at ambition instead is to think of being the best that we can be for the purpose for which we were created, being the best that we can be for the glory of God. We can't be the best all the time and forever, but we can be the best that we can be for the glory of God. John was the best for a period of time. He had a ministry, he had a role, he had an opportunity, he had an ambition to make the way straight for the Messiah, to, to tear down mountains and to fill in valleys, to convict people of sin and to encourage them. That was his ambition, and his ministry lasted as long as it lasted, and then it was over. If his goal was to be himself the best of all time and never forgotten, I believe that he would have collapsed in on himself, a mass of insecurity and jealousy but instead he saw himself for what he was the best that he could be for the glory of God he did that and that brought him life and I would say from a human perspective there is a kind of immortality that he has how often have you, you heard that story of John saying he must increase and I must de decrease and the feeling that we feel is, oh, that's what I want for myself. Oh, if I could just get out of my way long enough to let him increase in me, that, that he would be all. We resonate with his example. Why? Because he knew that he was not the end or the goal or the meaning. He was not the center. Jesus was the center. The Messiah was the star. And he was to be in orbit around him. Paul had received a letter. This is the letter to Paul from the Philippians, perhaps. And he had heard that, that though uh, he had ministered in the city of Philippi and he had planted the church, that there were people who were now preaching the gospel who were Paul's enemies. They were his rivals. They were saying things like, 
Paul's not any good. That's why he's in prison. You know, Paul's a loser. That's why he doesn't get paid. Paul doesn't preach the gospel right. Paul doesn't do this. Paul doesn't do that. All these people who criticized him. And so he gets this letter, and the Philippians were saying something like, oh, my goodness, you'll never, you're never going to believe what this guy's doing, what that guy's doing. And, and, and so Paul in his cell receives this letter, right? And he is chained to a Roman guard in a prison somewhere. He knew the hearts of these people on the level that he could and their motivations for preaching the gospel. But Paul identifies who he is and what the point of his life is as he writes in response to them. Rather than trying to be the center or the star or the sun, he is content, we see, to be a satellite, to take his proper place. Paul says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Some of them do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Like, there are people who, because I was imprisoned, they're like, Paul's been in prison. Who's going to preach the gospel now? I guess we need to do it. And they go and they begin to do it. But others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're like, Paul's in prison. Paul can't correct me. Paul can't preach better than me. Now I can preach. Now I've got a room and an opportunity. And I can go out there and say anything that I want. He says that they don't preach him sincerely, but thinking instead to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, Paul says? What do I have to say about that? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul had ambition. He was unstoppable. This little man who suffered enormously, who had incredible physical difficulties, I believe, when he speaks to the Galatians, he says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me if you could have, because I think he had some kind of eye trouble or struggle. He, he was beaten routinely. He was regularly misunderstood. He had a band of people who followed him and who caused trouble. But his ambition was not connected to being the best or being the greatest. Instead, his ambition was connected to the larger story of God's plan. And we talked about that last week, that God's plan is his glory and the knowledge of him covering the whole earth, that God would be God and all people would know it, that people would see Jesus, that they would know God's word and they would see God's word pointing to Jesus, that Jesus would be at the center and not us, not God's people. Paul had connected his life to that. He'd broken away from this smaller story of being the greatest among his tribe, these teachers called the Pharisees, of being the most righteous, of praying the most, of knowing the most Bible. He'd broken away from that smaller story and connected himself to the larger story. I'm sure this is a battle that many of us engage on a regular basis. We struggle to move away from our own story because of our own pain or our insecurity or our sense of worth and our need for respect in the areas that we value and crave. We want praise. We want honor. We want more money. We want more respect. We want more power because then we will finally have validation and know our place 
in the world. But that is a hopeless place to find security. I can remember when I was in, I think I had just arrived here 10 years ago and talking with people at an event back in New Jersey when the housing crisis and banking crisis began, people saying, I spent all this time saving for my retirement and I lost half of it in the crisis. And the feeling of, of insecurity that had crept in because they had a plan and they had it all mapped out and then in a moment it vanished on them. And they learned the emptiness of trusting in something other than God. It may make sense to find our worth in different places in the world. It, it feels right because that's what people around us are doing, but it is only the false self, the, the thing that masquerades as a fulfilled human being, craving a place in the world and craving validation from the people around us and demanding comfort and peace and no trouble. But God is calling people into fellowship with him and he is revealing and creating the true self in us. By his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit and because of the shaping force of suffering in our lives, God chips away our sense of independence and our sense of, of personal security and peace that comes from having things and he teaches us to depend only on him. He's like a, a parent, right? Chipping that stubborn omelet out of a pan. It's stuck to that pan. and It does not want to come out. But the purpose that it was created for is to be enjoyed and eaten, right? This is a weird analogy. Sorry. Your purpose is not to be eaten. Um, but, but we need to be chipped away from the world and our security and our resting in all kinds of things that are just empty idols. And to be chipped away, God does that through suffering and difficulty. We leave behind what is insufficient to find meaning in our lives, and we move to connect to the big story. This is the good news of the gospel. It goes beyond what we normally hear or think of as the gospel. Hopefully this is not brand new good news to you. Yes, it is true that we are forgiven. We need that. It is the foundation. Yes, it is true that we are bought out of slavery to sin. We are raised to newness of life. We are healed of the disease of sin, which would drag us away from God and keep us from him in eternity. But we are also called to have ambition and to get into the game that God is working out in the world. He has a mission, and we are called into that mission and to cooperate with him in getting his mission done. Listen, this is one of these, these things. I play this game with my students every time I, I go to Africa. I'll ask them, who is it that acts in certain Bible passages? And so I show them Moses, right? You know, Moses held out his staff and the waters parted. Right? And there are Bible passages that say that he did it, and then there are ones that say that God did it. 
And I asked them, who did it? And they're, they're so wired to American teachers that they're like, I have to give the right answer. And so they're like, Moses did it, right? Or God did it. And they split into two camps. And I'm like, what if it's both? You know, because I like that answer. What if it's both? God works in and through people. One example, you can find them all over the Old Testament, particularly the first six books of the Bible. These examples show up all over the place. Listen to what God says. Deuteronomy 4.1. Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. Right? You're to do this. Go in. You go in and take the land. So are they to take it? Yes, but go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Isn't that amazing? There's cooperation here. God is is giving it to them. God is the one doing the work by his grace and his power, but they're to be involved and engaged in it. And that is the way that the Christian ought to approach his or her life. We ought to have holy ambition and to look beyond being redeemed and saved. It is good that is the foundation, but we ought to then say, Why did God create a me? Why did he call me into fellowship with him? He wants you to be engaged in his mission, which is also your mission. God's grace flows into you in a unique way because you are unique. You are called to salvation. You are called to holiness and to obedience to his priorities, you don't get to follow your heart and be unique there, right? You know, you, gotta, you don't get to say, like, holiness is this, right? God defines that. But you are who you are, and God called you and created you for your purpose. Paul has a unique passion and, in a sense, a role that can never be repeated. He was called into fellowship with God as a destroyer of the church. Early commentaries describe Paul as a raging bull destroying the church. That was his purpose, was to establish his own righteousness before God by crushing the church. But God called him and redeemed him, and he repented and was turned around, and then he became a defender and a planter and an advancer of the church. God didn't just say, be saved and sit on the bench for the rest of your life, you bad thing. Right? God said, I'm going to use you. And so Paul goes from place to place to place, starting the church where Christ is not named. And when people are like, oh, we're going to expand the influence of Christ here, Paul's like, that's cool, I'm out. There's a place over there where there is no church, where people have never heard the name of Jesus. I'm going to go there. I make it my ambition, he says, to preach where Christ was not named. And so he is excited that Christ is being preached in the city of Philippi. And he says, I'm looking forward to being delivered through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus. I'm going to be delivered. It's my eager expectation and my hope that I'm not going to rot in this prison. That's what he means when he says, I'm not all ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. God's going to do something and people are going to say, God's amazing. That's fantastic. Look at what he did through you. But then he pulls back a little bit from it. He says, whether through life or death, if I die here, or if I'm delivered, either way, I win. 
To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I die, I go and get to be with him and that is the greatest reward. But if I live, I have a mission to accomplish. If they let me go, I'm going to go back to doing exactly what I was doing. Paul views his entire life as connected to the story of what God is doing in the world. He sees God bringing his kingdom into existence, invading a world where the people said, get out and leave us alone. And God breaks back in, redeeming people, saving them. And Paul is growing that kingdom bit by bit, action by action, place by place, church by church, by planting the church. If I'm to live in the flesh, he says in verse 22, that means fruitful labor for me. I got work to do. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's like, do I want to die or go be with Jesus? That'll be great. Or do I want to stay here? I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's like, I don't really know which one I want. Really kind of want to meet Jesus. I want to be with him. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus because of my coming to you. Again, my desire is to be with Jesus, but I'm not going to wait for him to come in a non-biblical sense of waiting. A biblical sense of waiting is anticipative, anticipatory, active waiting. I made it sound like I meant to use the word and anticipate there. Um, because, well, anyway. He wasn't just going to sit back and do nothing and say, I'm saved I guess I'll just do what I want until Jesus shows up. Instead, he says, God is doing something in the world, and I want to be part of it because I know that God has called me to be part of it. If I stay here, that means fruitful labor. Imagine owning an orchard and going out there over and over and over and over again and pruning and planting and removing debris and cleaning and never bringing home a basket of fruit. What's the point Paul sees the point of his life as bearing fruit, as doing positive, good, God-partnered work. Not just waiting idly for Jesus to return. That is the great and glorious next event, which we wait for and ought to pray for and ought to anticipate. It is the next big thing in Bible history. Everything that we read is pointing to that, but... Our life story is not to be, and they waited. It's to be they worked while they waited. They were working hard, not to earn God's favor, but because of it. They, they were just turning pages in a book, right? Have you ever picked up a book that's just so big and you think like, man, how will I ever get to the end of this? I know how you'll do it. Read one page at a time and you'll get to the end. Right, I checked the, the, the counter on my audiobook. I use this app called Libby, and I download audiobooks from, from the library. It's fantastic. You don't have to pay for them like Audible. I got 56 hours to go in Les Mis. 56! And I'm like, I will do it. Right? You know, I drop somebody off and I go somewhere else. Like the kid gets out of the car and I'm like, audiobook back on. Right? You know, and it's I'm doing it five, ten, twenty-five minutes at a time. And then there are times where I'm like, what have I been doing for the last four hours? I don't even know. I'm just listening, 
You know, I'm like, did my hands like wash dishes or something? Did I do some laundry? Did I, did I, what, what happened? You know, it's so engrossed in the story. Paul views life as fruitful labor. His vision was the progress and joy in the faith of others, giving others a reason to glory in Christ. Now listen, that is your mission. And that doesn't mean quit your job and be a pastor. That doesn't mean quit your job and go overseas as a missionary. That means see yourself as called to salvation, but also called to a ministry of glorifying God where you are with what he has given you. Me? Yes, you. Ephesians 2.10 says this. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. If you've ever made something or produced something, think back to what it was like to be a child and to say, look what I made you. Look what I made. You know what Hank discovered this past week? Hand turkeys. You know, hand turkeys, right? You know, there's the beak goes right there and these are the feathers. He comes home and he's like, look what I made. Yes, that is amazing and epic. Like, you created something. God's creating something, too. And you're like, yes, you know, the Grand Canyon. And every day he creates a sunrise and he mixes pink and blue, which doesn't normally go together, but it looks really good when he does it, right? You know, and everybody tries to capture it and post it on Instagram. And it's like sky pictures, sky pictures. you got to see it. you got to be there. Keep posting sky pictures. It's fine. We, we... This is the New Testament focus of God's work. We are his workmanship. We are. Me? Yes, you. And if you don't believe that, you're doing one of two things. You're either succumbing to the lie of the devil or a lie that someone else told you, or you're calling God a liar. One is motivated, I believe, by insecurity and being beaten down. The other is, I'm not exactly sure where that comes from, rebellion, unbelief, created and being created for something. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for fruitful labor, which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them, right? Your, your life on some level is, is kind of like a VBS craft, you know, where you'd come in and everything had been cut for you and the googly eyes and the little Ziploc bag or whatever. You know, you're just like, okay, I put this piece here, I put the glue on, I put this on, I put the googly eyes on, and pow, I'm done. God's doing it, and he's calling us to partner with him doing it. You're his workmanship. He made you. He brought you through your life experiences. He brought you to this point in your life with your passions and your, the things that excite you and the things that, that you uh, have, have learned and the skills that you've acquired. And he did that for good works. And you know what? No one else can do those works for you. But predestination, it's not, yes, predestined to do them. Okay? We are blessed with an abundance of grace in order to be a blessing. We look with eyes of faith at what we have and we say, I see what I've been given and I can't help but give it away. 
or we're blessed to look with eyes of faith and to see all the things that we strive for and to see the emptiness and foolishness of being the center of our own world. When do you feel the most alive? When do you feel like you are living life? Is it when you are receiving or is it when you're giving? Paul quotes Jesus, not speaking primarily about money. Paul quotes Jesus and says, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus took the role of a servant. He would receive praise and honor, but he served. He made the sacrifice. He was humble. He gave away the blessings, the teachings he gave of himself to purchase salvation and is most blessed. So how do you feel? Consider these options, right? Some pastors and preachers make you want to feel like God has saved you and doesn't need you, and that kind of leaves you feeling cold and empty and worthless. God has saved you and loves you, okay? God has saved you and loved you and has a mission for you. That's kind of taken us to a new place. But think about this experience. When you actually give away, when you live that mission, when you, when you work and bless someone or you're using your, your talents and the reason that God created you, you're using them and then someone says to you, following that action, God used you to bless me and to help me. In my head, two things happen simultaneously. One, so often there's this sense of like, how in the world did that happen and why does he do that? Why does, why does God, how could God work through me? But then also there's that makes me feel alive. It makes me feel alive. When someone says, I understood this, I knew this, I learned this, I was encouraged, thank you for this, I'm like, I'm going to do more of that. Not for praise, but because this, like Jeremiah says, that, that the word burned in him like a fire. How could he not let it out? When we serve others, when we use our talents, our abilities, our resources to share with others, to encourage others, to help others, that is when we feel most alive. And yet, so many times we orient our lives to avoid risk, to preserve and protect our resources, and to, and to not ever be in a place where we might be being taken advantage of. And I think we pull ourselves back away from the place of purpose and feeling what we're supposed to feel, which is joy. Partnering with God, doing God's work. Many Christians say things like, I'm not sure what God wants me to do with my life. There's two answers to that. One is, receive this in the best sense of the word, it's foolish. 
You know what God wants you to do with your life if you have any acquaintance with the scriptures. He wants you to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty. That's in Matthew 25. He wants you to love God and love others. That's in Matthew 22. He wants you to make disciples. Micah, he says, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Over and over, the commands to the Christian are clear. This is what we're supposed to do. But there is a sense in which we feel that, that, that what is the unique purpose of my life? What am I created for? What makes me feel most alive? Let me just give you four recommendations where that is concerned. One, check your wiring. Ask the question, what skills do I have that I love to use? What do I enjoy doing? What, what have I been given? What kind of of, of Skills, whether soft skills or you know skills that you've been trained in, what do I have that I love to use? Second, check your heart. What makes you and God mad, sad, or glad? There are things when you see them, you hear a news report, or you hear somebody tell you this happened to someone, and you're like, that's not right. You know what? You know that God thinks it's not right too. If that's something that you have the passion to fix, then engage. Check your wiring, check your heart, check your place. Say, okay, where am I and where can I do that? Is there anybody else doing this? Who can I partner with? How can I help them? Right? You don't have to, you don't have to start a ministry to accomplish everything yourself. Sometimes there are other people who are already doing something that you can partner with and join with. And then check your motive. Embrace humility. Regularly crush your pride down over and over and over and point people to Jesus. Clarity of mission comes from God. We have clarity on what our mission is. Love people. Help those who need help. Make disciples. Honor God. Our mission is clear. So often we need to... to, to, to to stir up the courage and the creativity and the commitment to follow through on what we believe we're called to do. When, when I drove down here in 2007, I met with Pastor Lee at Ruby Tuesdays in Fruitland. And during that lunch, if you've hung out with me for any length of time, you know that internally I feel just like my kids act a lot of times. I'm like, you know. And at some point I pulled a sugar packet out of the, the, uh, the, the holder right in front of me. And I flipped it over and it said, if you knew no fear, what would you do? What a life-changing question. So many times we think somebody should fix this problem because we're mad, sad, or glad about something. We're, we're like, somebody needs to do this. This needs to happen more. We need to... And, and we're looking for someone else to do it because we lack the courage, the creativity, and the commitment to push forward. Provide the vision, some people will, will say, to the church. I can't, really. Not in the way that will provide you as an individual with lasting joy. Instead, we rise up and we partner together to do the work that God is calling us to do. 
author Jeff Spadafora in his book, The Joy Model, asks the question, what ignites your passion? What, what triggers you on the list? When you, when you consider that there's moral decline in the culture, that we're turning into raging animals on the internet, that there are physical health struggles in the world, that there are refugees from war-torn countries displaced all throughout the world, that there are kids with no positive role models in their lives. They, they have no direction. They're, as somebody would call them, under-familyed. The struggle of single parents, the abuse of human trafficking, Mentoring young married couples, building housing for the poor, developing resources for the poor in third world countries, getting engaged in adoption and foster care, providing legal assistance for those wronged by the system, reaching the unreached with the gospel, being involved in Bible translation and distribution, fighting off threats to religious freedom or human rights. What is it? That when you look out at the world, you say, somebody needs to do something about that. Maybe the answer is that's your mission. That's what you've been wired for. Throw yourself into something bigger than yourself. William Wilberforce, who lived in the British Empire, saw the moral evil of slavery. And this man struggled throughout his life with enormous physical problems, Tremendous physical difficulty, but also tremendous amount of emotional instability. He was, he was up and he was down as he considered the slave trade, and he worked and worked and worked to banish it. You know what? It took his entire life. He heard on his deathbed that the slave trade had been banished, that his law had been passed. There were many times in his life where he thought, this is too big for me, I cannot accomplish it, I am wasting my time. It's because it was bigger than him. God was accomplishing it. Ask the question, what ignites your passion? Find someone else who's doing that. Join with some other people. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then go test it out. Take some low-risk adventures into the unknown. There is a tendency nowadays to want to go big and to announce, I'm going to do this. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to, I'm going to do this or that. Instead, start small. Start with crawl steps. How do I just dip my toe in and, and get a sense of, is this where I'm supposed to be involved? Because this work is hard. And then try walking and, and getting involved in something a little bit bigger. And then running. We don't know the legacy that we're going to leave behind. We don't know the passion that we're going to inspire in others. We don't know the end result of the actions which God prompts us to by the power of his spirit and by the directing arrow of our conscience. But think about it. Paul was driven to plant the church. And you know what he did? He corresponded with the churches that he was passionate about, and he wrote, in large part, the guiding documents of the church. And I don't think he even knew he was doing it. And he left it behind as a legacy to us. Ask the questions, who am I? What am I passionate about? What do I feel is so right that I am willing to suffer for? And then what can I do to dip my feet in? You are the people of God.
You are his workmanship. You are God's project. You are what he is producing. And he has created you, us, we together for good works. And you know what? They're there. He created them beforehand and he put them out there and we just need to walk in them. Find your passion and your joy in engaging the mission that God has for you because he's got one. Listen, you are not the defective model that rolled off the production line that didn't get a mission. You're not. And you may be the one who says, I have a mission, but I am afraid. God told Moses to go and to speak. And when Moses said, I am not eloquent, God said, I will be with your mouth. Didn't I create man's mouth? God will be with you. He will. Let's close in prayer. Father, by your grace and for your glory, you've called us into fellowship and given us a mission. And Lord, as we consider that mission, we might not know what it is. We might not know where we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to accomplish it, what resources we'll use. That sounds very much where you want us to be in terms of what you assign to your disciples in the New Testament. You said, go and change the world and don't take any money or a change of clothes or any food with you. Go and do it. And you supplied all of their needs. Because that's the way that you work. Father, as your people, so many times we are like the rest of the human race, as one author has said, living lives of quiet desperation. But you have called us and created us for better things. You've called us to operate alongside of you, to cooperate with you in bringing your name and your fame and righteousness and justice to this world. And so we pray that you would help us, Father, to walk in a way that pleases you, to live in a way that honors you, and to seek out a mission that brings us fully alive and advances your kingdom. Father, for your glory and our joy, we pray that you would make it so. Help us to be bold and to do the hard work. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.